Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmidt, Swanee and Clarkie visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. All right, how are we? <laughs> We're great. Bad, we're good, great. good. We, um, I'm pretty good too. Let me tell you why we're great. Oh, well, you no, you tell why you're good because you have just had a week. Are you about to tell me you've booked one of another my fucking places holiday in the world? No, we haven't done that. God. Okay, all right, okay. We're just back, literally, a couple of hours ago from our little uh, circuit breaker end of school before Christmas school holiday trip to Rottnest. So, um, Lovely. yeah, we've just been. Out riding bikes around the island, enjoying family time together. Yes, swimming in the pool, going out for dinner, seeing Whoa. friends. It was very fun. It always very very social. So you just know everybody out there, and just running into people and having a drink with this one and that one, and having a swim with that one it was very nice. And what about you guys? It's such a beautiful island, Rodo. Mm. I love it. It is a lot of fun, isn't it? It reminds me, me to... of my childhood, and yeah. I've not even ever been in there in my childhood. Yeah, I think it's right bikes and the simplicity of it. Reminds you of the generic yes. childhood kind of memory. Yeah. And those little bays that they have that have got crystal clear water mm. and, you know, you can swim it's by yourself almost. Maybe not at this time of year, but, yeah. Mm, no, certain ones you can. Well, we haven't done that. We just we popped over to Halden Estate Winery earlier today to stock up on some wines for Christmas. And so we popped in and Tracy there said, oh, you know, I've got some people coming at 3.30, so come over about 4. So we rock in at 4 and she's finishing up their tasting. So she gives us a tasting and then she gives us some of the bottles that were used in the tasting as well as, you know, obviously what we bought. And she said to us that she might need help with bottling next year. So we're super excited because she's great and their wines are amazing. So, yeah, we've... Had a lovely afternoon. Are you their best customers? But not Rottnest. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. She honestly, she she sells squillions to you know. She sells and seashells whatnot. by the seashore. By the seashore, yes. That will probably That's be the later, yeah. Schmitty. <laughs> hmm. uh, what about you, my dear? How are you going, Schmitty? Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, not working at the moment. Um, taking some time off, as you both know, my mum's very ill. So tell me a story, someone, to uh, <laughs> distract me from what's going on in my private life. Firstly, though, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. And I'm Clarkie. And together we are Trial by Wine. And what are we drinking? Swanee's got something red hot. I'm on a diet, a diet coke. Diet coke. Hey, you're on the diet, not the no sugar. A real today. diet coke. That's a oh no, diet to embarrass myself, did you not see Raj walk in with that? I'd opened that and left that somewhere. I think. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. If, <laughs> although to be fair, I don't know if I did, but I grabbed that one on the way up. So that one's a bit not quite cold enough. If you were to do a blind taste test of Coke Zero and Diet Coke, could you pick them? Um, do you know what? I don't know that I could, and I think a lot of that's got to do with my nasal situation. I think that sometimes ah, I can yeah, right. definitely sense it, but sometimes it will stop me and I think, oh, God, that's a terrible can. Like sometimes it doesn't taste so crash hot and sometimes I'm like, this is awesome. I still can detect mm. small variances sometimes where I think maybe it's, I don't know, not, not, I don't believe there can be such a thing as a, not a good batch, but sometimes I think, oh, that's a bit watery or a bit gassy or I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah, right. I can't stand Diet Coke. Coke Zero I'm all right with, but Diet Coke yeah. I just think is revolting. See, I quite like Diet Coke. Yeah. I would tell myself the same, but I don't know that OG. I could pick them. Yeah, I don't know if I can. Oh, I reckon I could. But anyway. What are you guys drinking? Well, we're having, because um, we've just been to Halden, we're, we're having a Halden Estate Rosé, uh-huh. which is one of our faves. It's really nice. It's... It's hard to describe it, but I think it's like, you know, strawberry and cream, the lollies. It's like that, nipples. but without any, no, no, not, you know, the hard ones. The the nipples are the, you know, the soft ones. You know, the hard strawberries and cream? No, I only know like the soft Allen's ones. Is that not what you're talking about? Yeah, no, no, they, there's no, one that's like, you know how Werther's like are a white hard, bit Werther's original? And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like a, a red lolly. and a white swirl. Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, I know exactly so what you mean now. Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Yeah. 
So they're beautifully, it's a, it's a kind of nice berry flavour, but it's really smooth and not sweet yeah. at all. So I, I think that's what gives me the strawberries and cream thing without the sweetness. Without the sweetness, yeah. Hmm. Oh, that sounds yummy. Okay, and I am having a mango chutney. You know, why not? Woohoo! On a lovely sort of the warm Schmitty afternoon. special. Okay, it is indeed. All right, Clarky, come on. What have you got for us? All right, game on. Let's have a uh, let's try to have a bit of a laugh with all of these crazy times that are going on. Can you fill up my wine glass, Dale? I'm going to take it away. I'm clever like um, that. So, uh, as everyone would know by now, we are well. I'm doing stories of our travels, destinations we've been, and so today um, we're going to head to Los Angeles. So for us. We didn't spend a lot of time in LA. We kind of transited through on our way to Mexico, but we did pop out and do a bit of a wander down Santa Monica and Venice beaches and popped into a couple of bars, which was good. So staying consistent with the theme of a quick stopover in Lax, today's crime only has a small link. And I'm going to put a challenge to both of you to listen for that link and you've got to chime in with the buzzer. And when you do, the other one has to have have a sip of their drink. Maybe a skull of their drink, but you know, it's one of you wouldn't be too bothered by that anyway with your DCs. <laughs> by that, no. But I'm very competitive, mm. so I want to get um, in. Do you know what I mean that? That's what drives. Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You got, you got to win. That's the now the other course. thing is, this is. I, I, don't, I just got to win. I don't. Yeah, no, it's just win, and I'm happy to have a wine for you <laughs> if you win. Okay, so oh, okay. just oh, so that Schmitty doesn't yeah. feel left out. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, this is a there's a lot to this story, right? So it's going to be a two-parter, and I can't remember whether the lax reference is in the first part or the second part. So that's going to just throw it and make it a little bit more challenging. So just okay, yeah. So when we hear that. an LAX reference, we need to say yeah, and and it will it right? won't actually say it won't say LAX. It'll be Los Angeles Airport. Yeah, so okay. when you hear that, okay. chime in. Beauty. Oh, okay. Game yep. on, you two. All right, so um, we often... <laughs> well, I was going to say that, but I thought maybe not. So we often discuss <laughs> how we don't have time nor energy to commit crimes. You know how like, you go, God. Or I'm adultery. Flat out yeah. working oh, or, or like any of yes. that, you know. And it's all that thing about, you know, the, the planning and the execution and the cover-up to evade the cops and... It's like, oh, I'm God. I don't have the energy. So today I'd like to introduce you to who I think is the busiest woman in the world. But first up, <laughs> I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you my sources. So we listened to two podcasts about this. One of them was Serial Killers and the other one was Mummy Darkest. Both did very good um, and very different versions of the story. The Serial Killers one was much more factual and and really informative and the mummy darkest one was more comedic which is good and then there's also a number of web pages so particularly wikipedia oxygen.com murdypedia and vanity fair vanity fair had an incredible oh i'm here for that yeah they do one on it yeah yeah which which is why, Swanee, when you said i wonder if this is the one that you were talking about i was getting a bit nervous Anyway, no, uh, this all. next line Based on what you've said will probably so far, give it away. We've got so our story starts with the disappearance of Irene Silverman. So Irene Silverman was a former Radio City Music Hall rocket and she led a somewhat Ooh. charmed life in, in her Upper East Side, Manhattan townhouse. Your punctuation was amusing then because you said, having had a good time in her Upper East Side apartment. <laughs> <laughs> her upper east side. Well, yeah, no. So annoyingly, as I, something? I've I've got I've <laughs> I've got a a comma after upper east side and a comma comma after Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, oh, and they end upper east side ends on a line, and then Manhattan starts on another one. So I'm like, upper east side, I better pause. Right. Manhattan, I better pause. Or townhouse. Having married her late husband, multimillionaire Samuel Silverman, in 1941, Irene frequently rubbed elbows with A-list actors and politicians. Upon the passing of her husband, she began 
leasing converted apartments out of her home to some high-profile individuals. So she split the house up into apartments rather than it being one big one and then rented that out. And some of the people that she had stay um, were Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, yeah. It was a brownstone. So I think they're quite decent. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So Daniel Day-Lewis and Chaka Khan. Now, Irene was a little like... Can you feel me? Chaka Khan. You want them, baby? baby. I do it naturally. Uh, uh, That's it. uh, (laughs) Yeah. So Irene was a little like Schmitty. She liked to throw elaborate parties and she loved having interesting people attend. (laughs) I like the sound of Irene. Yep, Irene was a partier and I would have liked to have been invited to one of her parties. Oh, cracker. She sounds like an absolute cracker. However, unlike Schmitty, Mm. Well, at least so far, Irene's wealthy <laughs> lifestyle yeah. included a staff of personal assistants and housekeepers. Oh, no, I'm going to go. I'm pretty comfortable mm. that you don't have that just yet. No, I don't. I don't, sadly. Yep. When she started renting out her house to tenants, um, she was renting them out to wealthy tenants, people who could afford the average rent of $6,000 a month. And so this is in 1980. Ooh. So I don't know what that is in today's yeah. money. I was going to say that's a long time ago. Six thousand dollars a month oh, now. Yeah. In today's yeah. money, that's right. But but with that six thousand dollars a month, she used to like to treat her guests to her lavish hospitality. So she'd entertain them with colourful storytelling and good food, and she knew just about everything that was going on in their lives. So you know, once you had an apartment in that building. There were lots of fun things to be had because of her personality. And someone said about it, it was a sensational place to live. She really loved that house and enjoyed sharing it with her tenants. So oh. on the 5th of July, 1998. At a, yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks for that, coming. That's everyone. all the good stuff. That was love, that's really interesting. <laughs> well, who are you going to sentence? <laughs> So on the 5th of July 1998 at around 11.45am, Irene requested that one of her employees walk the dog and run some errands. Typical day, what happened all the time. Later that day, the same employee, once she'd done all of the errands, believing that Irene was in her bedroom for an afternoon nap, answered a phone call telling the caller Irene was asleep. However, when Irene hadn't come from her bedroom shortly before 5pm, the staffer went in, Mm. finding the bedroom in disarray, but no Irene. In addition, Mm. her passport, jewellery and $10,000 in cash were missing. Irene's disappearance soon garnered wide-scale publicity and a team of about 50 investigators, including NYPD 19th Precinct Inspector in Charge Joe Resnick, began questioning Irene's hired help. There was a lot in that, but just the name, the important bit is Joe Resnick. Mm. So they were concerned for her, he's saying this about the employees, and they gave lots of detail. So everyone was surprised. It was very unlike her to have gone missing, and, and they all wanted to get her found. So they're all very genuine. They will be um, helpful. Hoping that they'd yeah. be able to assist the police. Yeah, yeah. However, early suspicions fell on one of Irene's assistant, Menji Mengitsu, who boarded a flight to Atlanta just after Irene vanished. Menji. So... As, adve- as investigators looked to speak to Menji, their searches continued in New York City, questioning her known acquaintances. This is how they find- found out that not all of her tenants were receptive to her openness and generosity. On the 4th of July, Irene was dining in her vast basement kitchen with two of her friends, Elva Shkreli, a young Albanian fashion designer, and Carol Hansen, her biographer, when she suddenly pointed mm. to a closed-circuit monitor one of several around the house. They all looked at the monitor just as one of her tenants entered the building and, as he'd done every day since moving in three weeks earlier, he averted his face from the camera in the foyer. Ah, right. She had also noticed him standing on the other side of her door and looking creepy through the peephole to watch her, she told the tenant. Sorry, she told her friends. And she would notice this because she would see his shadow under the door as she walked past, which to me is just so creepy. It just seems like it's out of one of those mm. horror movies. Alfred Hitchcock film, yeah. Oh, it yeah, you just don't tension. want. So Irene had become uh, understandably deeply suspicious of this tenant. 
Irene told her friends that he had shown up on the 14th of July asking to rent an apartment. He was a handsome, well-dressed, articulate young man with a beautiful smile who said he was a Palm Beach businessman by the name of Marty Guerin. Irene's name had been given to him, he said, by an insurance broker in Florida as well as by Paul Vacari, the son of Irene's longtime butcher, Rudy. The young man had no references and no ID, but he promised that he'd get those to her the next day. Irene, her friends would say, regularly checked her tenant's references and was really thorough about it. So she was a bit suspicious. But when Guerin pulled out $6,000 in cash, she went, ooh, 6000 IRS won't know a thing about this. I'll take that. <laughs> so she showed him to apartment 1B, which was the, near the apartment that Irene used as her office and occasionally as her bedroom. I'm assuming by occasionally as her bedroom, it was when she got drunk in the basement downstairs with her friends <laughs> and couldn't make it all the way to her room. But there's no fact <laughs> suggesting that. However, Guerin never produced references, continually making excuses for why he was unable to provide them. He would not allow Irene's maids to enter his apartment and had strange visitors, a young man and an older woman who, like him, would avert their faces from the cameras. Mm. Irene was not happy with Guerin as a tenant and also annoyed at herself for letting him rent out the apartment. She asked him to leave a week after he arrived. When he did not leave, she cut off the phone service to apartment 1B and instructed her business manager to begin eviction proceedings. She was a confident woman and thought that she could take care of matters without involving the police. Detectives also searched Irene's home where they found a notebook of hers that happened to have a sketch of a young man in it. As it turns out, Irene was pretty handy with her sketches and when police showed it to people close to her, they said it was none other than Manny Guerin. Then, mm. on the 6th of July, 1998, police finally caught up with their initial suspect, Menji Mengitsu, who returned to New York and cooperated with the investigation, which put him at the bottom of the detective suspect list. That same day, officers also obtained a search warrant to enter Guerin's apartment and found Guerin's bed had been stripped. Black trash bags and discarded rolls of used duct tape were also found inside. Who keeps that used duct tape? I mean, come on, right? <laughs> I know. What's the world coming Exactly. To? Rookie, and rookie we all know, error. We all know what used duct tape is used for. Yeah. Yep, we do. And it's not handy repairs around the house. <laughs> exactly right. As I say, in our house, Kate uses it to stick everything together, especially <laughs> when we're putting a party on. I must say it's it has yeah. many, many uses, but in a podcast like this, it only has one. Investigators learned that a woman named Eve or Eva, purported to be one of Guerin's assistants, also lived with Guerin in apartment 1B. With this information, police held a press conference publishing a photo of Guerin and issuing a $10,000 reward in the hopes of finding Irene. Lo and behold, after the press conference, the NYPD received a call from the FBI saying... <laughs> Listen, you better get down here. We think we have something that you're looking for. I tried to go for the tone and not the accent. I hope you picked up on that. Wasn't a very good NYPD accent. <laughs> so federal agents had just arrested a man, Kenny Kimes, and his mother, Sante Kimes, out of the front of the New York Hilton. They were wanted in Utah for a check fraud and auto theft. As it turned out, they'd bought a Lincoln town car with a check that later bounced. Upon their capture, they found Kenny with an ID card and an American Express card belonging to Irene Silverman, and Sante was in possession of $10,000 in cash, the same amount missing from Irene's Ah. bedroom. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. How could that be? You know what I say? I tell you, passing off shitty checks, it's a gateway crime. Yes. Oh, well, hold that that thought. Gateway crime. I reckon... Mm -hmm. Also, if you were to pick, as I tell this story, if you were to call out gateway crime every time there was a gateway crime, we'd all be (laughs) very, very drunk by the end of this. (laughs) Okay. Who were Kenny and Sante and why did they have Irene's identification and a suspiciously similar amount of cash? And why were they (laughs) wanted in both Nevada and California? Well, Mm. to find out, we need to jump into the timey-wimey machine. Are you ready? Yep, let's go. So Sante Kimes was born Sante Louise Singers in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 
funnily enough. The third of four children to Mary singers. Van Horn. <laughs> singers. Yeah, I, I, I can't really pronounce it because it's Why S-I-N-G-H. It's S-I-N-G-H-R-S. Singers rather than That's singers. Yeah. She was a, the third of four children to Mary Van Horn, who was a native of Illinois and was of Dutch ancestry, and Prama Mahendra singers, an East Indian immigrant. So I think oh. there's... Oh, okay. It's an Indian name, which singers. I thought okay. we were like so Hispanic kind of... there for a while, but now I'm totally wrong. Oh. Well, Sante sounds oh, Hispanic. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking. I'm, I was I not mean, in Indian yeah. mode at all. Now I'm okay, right, got it. Yeah, so now, um, now we all know that, which is great. When Sante was three years old, her father abandoned the family and there are suggestions but no proof that her mother resorted to prostitution to support her children. There are also rumours, but nothing definitive, that Sante was molested by several adults. According to her estranged sister, Sante had an incestuous relationship with her older brother. And she also said that when they were children, Sante would hold lit matches underneath her sister's fingers against her will. And at the risk of giving... Drink! (laughs) Yeah. Hang on. Go, 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 go. And. Oh, the recipe for a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Get ready with your buzzer, Schmitty. At the risk of giving you too oh much God. information about Sante at this early stage of the story, as a child, she would tie up goats and dogs on her family's farm and use hat pins to torture them. Uh, red flag. Far out. Serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Drink. <laughs> So Sante would hang out at a soda shop on Melrose Avenue, a place owned by Kelly and Dorothy Seligman, who also owned a movie theatre in the same block. Sante charmed the two owners and from time to time they would waive the admission charge and let her in for free. Dottie Seligman had a sister who couldn't conceive children with her husband and they wanted to adopt. The sister and brother-in-law Edwin and Mary Chambers were more than willing to share their home with a needy youngster. Ed, a career military man, was about to take an important position as the third highest ranking officer in the Nevada National Guard. For Mary, the timing was perfect. She ended up signing over her parental rights to Edwin and Mary Chambers and Sante moved in with a new family in Carson City, Nevada. Sante attended Carson High School where she went through a few name changes. Sante Singers became Sandy Singers, then Sandy Chambers, taking on her adoptive parents' surname. On Mm. the surface, Sandy Chambers appeared to fit in and even thrive. She got decent grades, was a cheerleader for the basketball team, the historian for the Spanish club, member of the Glee club, and co-editor of the school's newspaper, The Chatter. So, busy kid, right? However, Mm. she was best known for being boy crazy and a consummate flirt. Oh, There was a darker side emerging as well. Sante was caught shoplifting at a local five and dime for an offence that wasn't prosecuted and once went on a shopping spree after stealing her adoptive father's credit card. She seemed to be happy with her Mm. new life, so much so that when her own mother showed up in Carson City one day wanting her back, Sante refused. Sante Sante graduated from Carson High School in June 1952 and on that day she told everyone within listening range that she was going on to college to get a degree and become a journalist. However, three months later she married a high school sweetheart, Lee Powers, and then subsequently divorced him three months after that. Lee was in the army and decided he wanted to become a teacher. Sante, on the other hand did not want to become a housewife. So she left him, telling him that she was pregnant. And, of course, you guessed it, she wasn't. But why would you leave him and tell him Just leave him. Just leave him. I'm assuming she said that she said she was pregnant to somebody else. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, right, right. Okay. That's. I think that was her getaway, her ruse. So after that, There'd be a six-week secretarial course at a Reno business school and two years of bouncing around Northern California, not literally, from San Francisco to Sacramento. (laughs) Kind of a journalistic degree, isn't it? Kind Kind of. of. I mean, you know. (laughs) And she was with her friend Ruth Tannis, alternating between office work and college courses. Ruth describes that time of their lives as grand, saying they were like Laverne and Shirley. (laughs) I can't right. remember the theme song from Laverne and Shirley, We're gonna but I think do it was a cracker. It. 
that's it. Yeah, that's it. And we did it our way. Yes, our way. Making our dreams come true. And we'll do it our way. Yes, our way. And there's a rubber glove on one of the bottles on the processing plant in the opening. Yes, I remember that. That's right, yeah. So after those shenanigans, <laughs> Sante eventually returned to Carson City and married another high school admirer, Edward Walker, in 1956. Now, Edward was a reasonably well-to-do man who worked as a contractor building homes in the Sacramento area. They married the following year. However, the couple got into debt after one of Sante's spending sprees. She literally grabbed a credit card, went down to the uh, local mall and splashed about 13,000 US dollars in one day, mainly on Christmas presents for friends. And when Edward found out, he said to her that she needed to return them all. She said, I can't because I've given them all away already. So 13,000 in US in like the late 50s, maybe early 60s. That's a lot of money. How do you even have a credit card with that kind of limit? That's true, actually. Wow. He was a well-to-do man. I don't know. Okay. As it would turn out, Sante is an ideas woman and needed a solution to her problem. So she set the house on fire. Okay. Oh, of course. That'll work. I don't know Hmm. why I didn't think of that. A bit of insurance fraud. Why not? Yeah. Right. That'll just take the heat off the present because, oh, we've got something else to worry about now anyway. Is that the, well, we had the presents, but the 13th, they're in the house when it burnt down, so we need to claim for those as well. We'll get to that. Is that the gateway crime buzzer I hear going off? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> gateway crime. Drink. <laughs> or how many of her fur, fur coats went up in that too and her diamond rings and anything oh, else I can think of that was valuable? Everything. None. The Learjet? Oh. In this fire. This time, this time, yes. right, okay. So, dun, dun, dun. as it turns out, the fire only destroyed the kitchen and they received 10,000 US dollars, which is the equivalent of 99,000 in 2022 money. That's a lot. Heaps. Mm. During the course of their marriage, dozens of homes that Walker had built mysteriously burned down. Not only that, but Santa had a number of affairs with Walker's wealthy business associates. Her husband accused her of stealing and shoplifting and indeed she was arrested in 1961 in Sacramento for petty theft. This time she stole a hairdryer that they could have easily afforded and when Edward Mm. challenged her on it, she blamed him for not working hard enough to bring in the money. She's got a problem. (laughs) Which one? She's a bit. Winona Ryder can afford whatever she stole. Right. Some people have problems. So she's got the Winona Ryder vibes for sure. And, and a yeah. whole lot more. Yeah. She's a piece mm. of work is what she is. Oh, you ain't seen nothing I'm yet. Just bum, bum. Oh, yeah, I bet. I, I, yes, I feel that we're just, we're only, as you say, at the, ent- the entry. After this arrest, from which she was subsequently released, she and Edward separated, but remained an on-again, off-again couple. In 1962, oh. Edward and Sante had a son, Kent Walker. Then... In early 1963, Sante's name appears in the newspaper for adultery. She'd been sleeping with one of Edward's what? clients Why they, 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 since they, they, 1961. <laughs> it must be a low news day. I don't know. It must be. Oh, what? Or oh, he took an ad out. Just let everyone know my yeah, wife no, was, has been shagging around. Literally like headlines of Sante's a adulterer. It wasn't quite that. God, you know, that kind, naughty lady. That kind of thing, yeah. That's weird. All right. At the end of 1963... She arranged to have her Sacramento house burned to the ground to collect the insurance money. <laughs> 1964 Never saw her move anyway. to a new house in Burbank, California, to start a new life. The next year, oh, she got nice. several credit cards and in no time managed to rack up $20,000 in debt, which she could not pay off. And then her house burnt down. <laughs> Sound like she needs to pay anything off. She's next. Yeah. <laughs> There's just this horrible cycle, right? When police caught up with yep. her, she was charged with 17 counts of grand theft. She was then charged with auto theft a few days later. One of her former lawyers recalls of the auto theft. Oh, hang on. Schmidty, is that auto that theft? Is that a gateway is crime? That a... I don't think I've got enough mango chutneys to get me through this episode. Yeah, go on. But if we're playing a drinking game, 
early on in our COVID days, you used to get wine delivered through one of your things. I so, know, those were the days, weren't know. they? Yeah, yeah. They? <laughs> one of her former lawyers recalls of the auto theft, let me tell you the story of the car theft. Sante walked into a Cadillac dealership and conned the salesman into letting her test drive a convertible. Alone, of course. And, of course, she never came back and drove the car for <coughs> months as if she owned it. When the police caught up with her, she told them she'd been given the car to test drive and that's what she was still doing. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about it yet. I think I just have to put another 20,000 Ks on it and then I might yeah, I think, I'm done. think it's all right. Yeah. I'm normally well, a really okay. uh, decisive person, but there's just something about this car I'm not sure. It's not my fault, it's the car. They didn't say it was only for a short period of time. You know, how was I supposed right? to know? Then in 1966, Sante gets herself a new boyfriend. His name's Clyde. And together they steal in Los Angeles and then drive to Palm Springs to stash the stuff in the house that Clyde owns. They burn the house down to get the insurance money for all the stolen items. And they also burn the upper half of Edward's Laurel Canyon house, which Edward had given her as a gift. Again, to collect the insurance money. I don't know how. I mean, it's a long time ago, right? So I guess insurance companies weren't as interconnected as they are now. But my God. (laughs) Then in 1967, Sante divorces Ed. But then. It seems so well Yeah, I know. It's a love story. For the ages. For the ages, yeah. (laughs) But then in 1968, she hears he has a new girlfriend. So Sante goes to his house and smashes his window and attacks Ed while trying to find out who his new girlfriend is and where she is. A few weeks later, she catches up with a new girlfriend in the car park and attacks her, dragging her around by her hair. What? <laughs> it's, just, it's just nonsense. Like, how busy is this woman? Yes, good point. <sighs> The rap sheet's filling up pretty Sorry, quick. Sorry, that's my exhaustion. Was yeah, my right? Just, oh, I don't know how she's You just don't have the energy that she has. Santa. I don't. I hardly have the energy to get out of bed, she's you know. in her 20s. I think she was born in 68, so she's 34. 34, mm. my God. I don't think I had that much energy at 34, yeah. but okay. Yeah. <sighs> and she's a mum. Well, that doesn't seem to bother her. No way. So the rap sheet's filling up um, in the police station of police stations of Southern California. There was a charge against her in Glendale in 1968 and another grand theft charge in Riverside the next year. She also worked as a prostitute in Palm Springs. In 1969, she and boyfriend Clyde shoot blanks at Ed on a mountain road because, as they <laughs> said, he turned in on them. I mean, that's fair. What? Like cut him off. Like cut him off. Well, he turned into the road? Oh, oh. oh no, right. Tur- okay. Like turned in on him, mm. like cut him off. I thought road rage was like something that came out in the sort of 80s and 90s. But it's more lippy too. She's got it going on in Oh, I'm sure it's been around, but yeah. By this stage, she didn't have contact with her adoptive parents. And when Mary Chambers died of cancer, also in 1969, Sante couldn't even be bothered attending the funeral. Well, she, she was busy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she was very busy. By this stage, she she was done with Clyde and she was looking for the big score. She wanted money and she wanted lots of money. So she needed to find someone who could uh, deliver that. She began looking for a soulmate. And by soulmate, I mean somebody who had obscene wealth to give her the life that money. she craved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enter Kenneth Kimes. <laughs> Sante's third husband was born in Prague. I use husband as a term lightly, and we'll talk about that later. I'll be honest, Kenneth, Ken Kimes sounds like he's from the gong. I think I've got a relative with the surname Kimes. He doesn't sound like he's from Prague to me. <laughs> Ken Kimes, <laughs> Kenny Kimes does not yeah. sound like he he's from He doesn't sound Czechoslovinskian. No, he does not sound like he's Czech at all, Kenny Kimes. Mm. But if this story has taught us something, it's that what your name is doesn't often reflect what your background is, Sante. Yes. Also, I'm having more issues with the comma, right, because I've paused after Prague every time and we haven't been able to get past it. So Kenneth Kimes was born in Prague, Oklahoma in 1916. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, sorry, Clarky. I didn't 
think that was your Don't fault. Be sorry, I'm that was gold. No, I mean, that's just okay, the way live recordings well, work. I love it. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Doesn't and, you know, it, right? Dark yes. does sound a bit like the gong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. About the time Sante was being born, he was on his way to California with three brothers and two sisters and riding on an old flatbed truck, part of the Great Depression migration. Oh, I'm confused. When Sante was born in 1934? About the time someone was she on was a being tr- born. Okay. He was on a truck. So he's he's older than her. So he's, what, Much 18 years older? Her. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So he's on his way to California with three brothers and two sisters and riding on an old flatbed truck part of the Great Depression migration. So big family, not much money. For years, the family moved up and down the fertile valleys of the Golden State, picking melons and, and harvesting lettuces. I've talked about pennies. it before. The fruit basket of America. Uh, isn't that where you bury people? Well, I've been there. in the fridge, yeah. yeah. The fruit yes. bowl of America, yeah. Despite the low salary, Ken Kimes had the mentality of the time, saving part of his pay packet every time he got paid and eventually this grew into a nice nest egg and as ken said i was the fastest goddamn melon picker in san joaquin valley joaquin j-o-a-q-u-i-n joaquin san joaquin valley he would drunkenly boast several decades later after he'd become a millionaire many times over that's where he's going wow when world war Right? When World War Two began. Melon picking was that lucrative. <laughs> he was the fastest goddamn melon picker. He was like an octopus. I bet he worked hard though. <laughs> he did, yeah, yeah. So he's he's from that depression era, you know. They they needed money yeah. and they knew how to work for it for it. He was he was among the first to enlist when World War Two began and he spent the war years helping to liberate and then occupy the Aleutian Islands from the Japanese. The cold, desolate isles off the coast of Alaska weren't the greatest place to spend three years, but he made the most of it. He would trade guns with the indigenous population for fresh fish and caribou, which he would then sell to the mess hall. He also operated a small casino inside the Quonset hut. (laughs) By V-Day, he'd managed to send a tidy sum home. He's a doer, this guy. Entrepreneur. Oh, he's a hustler, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's a doer. His side hustles a fucking casino. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst he's at a war. Like, that's impressive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're making me feel good. During one leave. Each person with I know. These people just make us feel so lazy, don't they? La- <laughs> laziness isn't the gateway crime, is it? No. No, it's the opposite of gateway is, crime. Is, <laughs> yeah. is, is doing a lot of gateway crime? Because we've seen a few people who just do a lot. Not always. It depends on what you're doing. Like some people are very busy, but they're not being nefarious. Sante doing a lot is a gateway crime, that's for sure. Oh, she's nefarious. She was doing things with goats when she was a kid. Gateway crime. She was burning the goat's fingernails. <laughs> she, they, were, she, they were saying things like how she'd ca- catch the dog and then, like, put a lighter under its testicles. Like, she's oh, just... Oh, poor little thing. Oh. A monster. Yeah, I'm trying not to focus on those bits. Sorry, I'm trying to focus on the humorous side. During one leaf, he found time to woo and marry a Texas beauty, Charlotte Taylor. Now, Charlotte's spelled C-H-R-L-O-E-T-T-E. Charlotte and Ken would have two children, a boy and a girl, (laughs) and began the post-war years with a little bit of cash and a sky's-the-limit attitude. At the time, everyone seemed to be buying cars. Yeah, highways were being built and the couple decided to get into the construction business. After building a few apartment complexes. boom time, basically. Yeah. These are clever. Yeah, they they actually are. After building a few apartment complexes and trailer parks, they began focusing on motels as everyone seemed to be getting about by car. Charlotte Mm. recalled, we built about 30 motels and we sold them for tremendous profits. But it didn't take them long to figure out that they could make even more money by building them and then owning and operating the new lodgings. So soon there was a small empire with the crown jewel of their chain built directly across the street from the newly constructed Disneyland. The 100-room complex was called the Mecca Motel. Charlotte soon discovered that her husband had a dark side. He began to control her dolling out an allowance and specifying what she could and couldn't buy. Ken's mother and sister lived Mm. in the small mansion in Orange County and on her husband's orders insisted upon going everywhere with Charlotte. 
Not only was Ken Kimes Sr. away for weeks at a time, but also Charlotte soon found out that there was a loose woman near every motel her husband built, coincidentally. Judy Rat. Loose woman. Charlotte said, I'd worked like a dog for him. I thought that every time he socked away another 100000 he'd relax, but he never did. Money became his god, and he was a womanizer. Slick as a button about it, and he got away with it for a long time. Eventually, I got blindsided. Charlotte filed for divorce womanizer, in 1963. Boy, don't try to say me. I know, that's just what you are. are. Uh, uh, uh. I know, that's what you you, you, you are. You, you, you are. Charlotte filed for divorce in 1963, but Ken Kimes hired the former Attorney General for the State of California to represent him. In the end, Ken got away with the bulk of their fortune, and Charlotte had no regrets. Now, there are two stories on how Kenneth Kimes met Sante. The first is that Sante saw an article on California millionaires in a magazine in 1971. She liked his looks, not to mention his estimated net worth, and began circling him like a hawk. (laughs) (laughs) I like your estimated net worth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that does look good on you. Mm, Oh, you smell like dirty money. (laughs) The second is that he went after her. He needed a public relations person for an American bicentennial scheme he was cooking up one in which he hoped to make several million dollars. Now, my money is on the first one, and I think after this next little bit, you'll agree. Anyway, whichever is true, Kenneth Kimes had more than met his match. At first, Sante behaved like a geisha, or maybe a practice <laughs> bar girl out to earn a commission on each shot I bet she didn't have anywhere near the class of a geisha. We've talked about geishas before. We did have. We, did we, we talk have. about that in the Sada Abe case? Yes. We and absolutely very did. Classy, very yeah. I'd so, bet this bird so let me anyway. Let me explain myself. So she would personally <laughs> stir his whiskey cocktails with her little finger while pretending to keep up with him for a drink. Instead, hers would be deposited in the planter or a waste basket. When he would get drunk, she would take charge. And if called upon, she could perform every sexual trick in the book. Ken Kimes may have controlled Charlotte, but it was Sante who was calling the shots now. She asked him what his favourite flower was. She asked him what his favourite flower was. And when he told her, she went to a perfume shop and had them duplicate the fragrance to (laughs) Maybe that explains the smells like my vagina candle. (laughs) (laughs) It's the orchid of the sea. (laughs) She had him eating out of her hand, a relative said. However, Sante wasn't as yet a trophy wife. Ken was reluctant to marry her. And even when they had a son, Kenny, who we'll talk about later, that didn't persuade him. In fact, it would take 10 He's years for Ken to marry her. Mm. By, the t- by that time, their she son Kenny would be six years old. So hard so for it, honey. hard for yep. it, honey. Yep. So by the time they did marry, again, in inverted commas, their son Kenny would be six years mm-hmm. old. Sante would have escaped a lengthy prison term and was already beginning to teach the- their son the tricks of the trade. More of that later. Mm. In 1972... <laughs> Sante gets 10-year-old Kent, their first son, to sneak into houses to mm. steal things for her. This goes on for two years. But really, it wasn't getting cry? Sante the big bucks that she craved. Oh, Oop. here we go. I can't get my kids to, <laughs> <laughs> to steal nothing oh, for me. God. Could you please do your They're homework? They're bloody feral. They don't steal nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Together with Ken, they worked on a scheme to get them rich, as if they weren't already rich enough. The Aren't scheme, they already, yeah, cook, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, but so it's it's one of those things, you know, money's a disease and they, I mean, he, he wants more of it. She is just obsessed with it. <laughs> Ken cooked up a scheme and then Sante put it into motion and it involved making money from the 1976 American Bicentennial. It was called the Forum of Man. Had to sound grand, right? <laughs> but but really, all they were trying to sell were giant posters of state flags 
and bumper stickers that extolled the 200th birthday of the United States. They, they thought that simply being seen in the okay. right Washington circles and being photographed in the right places would make the government put a poster in every classroom in America and sell the excess through post offices. They figured that they would be worth about $10 each and that there were 250,000 such classrooms in America. The problem was Ken needed credentials. So he started out by uh, addressing civic groups on patriotism. He also began calling himself the Honorary Bicentennial Ambassador of the United States. <laughs> Cheapest. A, t- a term oh, yeah, made up. of 200 years. The Honorary. <laughs> like it's not even like it's. But that oh, was yeah, a term yeah. <laughs> cooked up by Sante. And okay, right. he would say that he would soon be travelling. Well, she is his PR genius. Well, she, she's the one, right? I mean, for all of his involvement, she's got the shit going on. He would say (laughs) that he'd soon be travelling throughout the world to let other countries know about the forthcoming celebration. But an official sanction was needed. Who gives a shit? And it wasn't long before the the brazen pair showed up at the White House to meet with Patricia Nixon. Oh, my Lord. This is not our first um, criminal who's been in touch with the White House. In the White House, it's not. Gacy, clown. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Gacy. yeah, 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 clown. Yep. So, Schmidty, I'm just I'm grabbing my wine clown. glass. I'm just grabbing my wine glass in anticipation. <laughs> Ken and Sante had forged a memo on White House stationery that supposedly was to Mrs. Nixon from a high-ranking White House assistant <laughs> asking her to see him. Forgery, oh, forgery. be a gateway, gateway crime, crime. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, right. yeah. Drink. I can't wait for the second part of this. I'm going to be talking shorthand. <laughs> the forged memo represented Ken Kimes as a big Republican donor and philanthropist who only wanted to give back to his country. So when they rocked up at the White House to meet Mrs. Nixon, she could see right through their flimsy charade and motioned oh, the White House photographer away. She's good a sharp Pat. woman. However... Yeah, don't waste your time. These people are a pair of dickheads. Yep. So as as they're uh, getting, as a, she's motioning away the White House photographer, Sante says, hold my beer, and whips out her camera <laughs> and takes a snapshot of oh. the event. That photo soon appeared in the Bicentennial Times, the official newsletter for the big year. Oh, my God. And who was writing the Bicentennial Times? Was it the honorary ambassador? Not the honorary. Bicentenary? No. No, <laughs> yeah. because he's, okay. he doesn't do the work. All right. Sante and Ken okay. were halfway there and used a photo with Mrs. Nixon to arrange meetings with other federal officials. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's good. So on the 26th of February, 1974, Sante and Ken went way over the top and did themselves in. Perhaps hoping to get some invitations to visit foreign countries as honorary ambassadors, they began the evening by slipping past the Secret Service at a Blair House reception for Vice President Gerald Ford, where they chatted him up on their plans for their worldwide bicentennial tour. <laughs> it just oh, the worldwide bicentennial oh, tour. That's like so no ridiculous. one gives a shit. Yeah. Oh. T- <laughs> 2,000 years AD and there's a worldwide bicentennial tour. Sante wore large diamonds on virtually every finger. I mean, of course they were fake, (laughs) but that didn't deter her. Oh, okay. Prototypes. They didn't need to be. They would have had enough to get some, right? Yeah, true. Right? But again, that's her. So um, she told one woman that she was from East Indian royalty. And she told another that she was a full-blooded American Indian. What a liberty. What a fucking liberty. They uh, (laughs) left that party and hopped in a cab and proceeded to crash parties or receptions at the West German Embassy, the Belgian Embassy, and finally a sit-down dinner at the Smithsonian's Renwick Gallery. I'm sorry, but why wasn't Nixon assassinated? The Secret Service is shocking at that period. I they mean, if anyone wanted to. On multiple occasions. Exactly, right? Would have been easy. Mm, he mustn't have been okay. hating enough at that point. 
At the Belgian residence, Sante boldly took the floor and made a pitch for the flag posters before being asked to leave. I mean, they're, they're doing all these really brazen seen, things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you seen the film The Party? I have, yes. 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 Anoint yes. my head. I don't head, know why. The 1990. But... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but this Belgian party in the 60s, <laughs> Just suddenly made me think of the party. Well, I, I reckon that's that spot is. on. Medi num num, medi num num. Oh, people asked him to leave anyway. Medi okay, <laughs> so <laughs> they might have gotten away with the whole scam, except the next morning, telephone calls began flooding the desks of Washington society editors. Two days later, a Washington Star headline read. The biggest crash since 1929. This is the story of how good manners and gall will get you into the world of Washington society, the story began. The caption under Ken. So so there was a picture of Ken and Sante and the caption under it said, Kimes rhymes with climbs. (laughs) (laughs) What a cut. Uh, The competing Washington Post uh, had an investigative team on the affair and soon reported that the letter used to get an audience with Pat Nixon had been doctored. Exposed, the couple's attempted swindle was over, but not before Sante told a reporter they were doing the project just to get rid of cynicism in the world. (laughs) All that effort, just get rid of cynicism. Well, why didn't he call himself the honorary ambassador of anti-cynicism then? Maybe because he'd already been labelled the uh, honorary citizen of bicentennials. Or honorary ambassador of gate crashing. Yeah. Of gateway crimes. That's her. She should be the honorary ambassador of gateway <laughs> That's crimes. That's yeah. She also <laughs> said that Ken was a Will Rogers type, a self-starter and a tiger. People ask me if I'm involved with him, Brr. she said. Well, I love him. I just love his warmth. I love his money. I think to be fair, he wasn't the problem. <laughs> I just love him. Later... In 1974, I just love him. Sante got arrested for stealing from a shop in Newport Beach. Now it was thought that she was stealing a son yeah. for her, um, a, not a son. It was thought that she was stealing a, a present son for, for her, her son dog. Ken's birthday. Yeah, right. That's also why words are important. We've now learned that not only commas Again. are important, but words. If you use the wrong words, it confuses everyone. Yeah, it does. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. But they've got so much money. What is she stealing so a son for a present? So much money. Yep. And she, she, she was fine. She's everything, isn't she? Yeah. She yeah. Just, oh, she's yep. just foul. So she was fined $250 and two Ooh. years probation. Then in 1975, young Kent got arrested for stealing surfboards. And, of course, Sante was furious that he got caught. Surfboard. Yeah, it's good he got caught. Mm. I didn't get to say that. Stealing surfboards. Yeah, In, you know. What year is this now? I mean, how fucking hard is it to steal a surfboard? You can't just put it in your pocket 70s? and walk out. 75. Yeah, 75. And they were, they were heavy then. They weren't made like they are is now. Is that a surfboard in your pocket you know, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> are you just pleased to see me? That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Mm. A surfboard. Oh, fuck. All right. Oh, start, anyway. Play no she was furious. <laughs> that same year. Because yeah, he got caught. Ken and Sante had Stupid a son. child. And guess what they named him? Kenny. Ken. Right? Kenny Jr.? Ken Kimes Jr. Well done. Perfect. Schmitty, I think knowing a lot about crimes is a gateway crime. Yeah, Kent. And the dad is Ken Kimes. You have to honour the millionaire. You've got to honour him. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. particularly particularly if you're Sante and you want to get married to... Ken oh, Senior. totally. Yeah, I just love him. I love his walk. It's like insurance policy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's really hard for him to say that's not my child since he's named the same. Correct, yeah. You know, things go sour when we've got the paternity suit. <laughs> uh-huh, anyway, yes. Not the- just called him the same name exactly, Ken Kimes, yeah. Kenneth Kimes. 
So, so we now have Ken, who is Ken Ken Kimes Senior, and Kenny, who is Ken Kimes Junior. Okay, so that is how they shall be known from this point onwards. Ken and Kenny. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, in 1978, the Kimeses met Charles Catalan, who was a retired attorney living in Texas. Catalan was hired by the Kimeses to sue an insurance company that had refused to pay a $100,000 claim, Schmitty, on a tapestry they said had been stolen from their Honolulu home. Through the process... It was the Bayou tapestry. <laughs> tapestry. It's such a great word, is it? Tapestry. 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 It was priceless, really. Through the process, Catalan eventually became so. convinced mm. that the insurer was right. The tapestry had never existed. It was a very rare piece of the Bayou tapestry. Of course it existed. <laughs> very rare. <laughs> but we wouldn't know that now because it's gone. Exactly right. how rare. You'll never be able to find well, it anywhere again. Yep. Impossible to tell you because if you don't find it, that's it. Mm-hmm. Kenneth's sister, who was it's living gone. with it's them at gone. the time, had testified in court that she had never seen it. As a result, something. <laughs> Sante became furious with her elderly sister-in-law and kept her a prisoner in the Honolulu house, starving her before relatives were able to get her away. Oh, my God. The actual. What? Uh-huh. Okay, that's a gateway. That's not even a gateway. We're in 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 now. You've opened the gate. You're 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 in there now. Oh, hang on. You said gateway so I drank and now I don't have to and I can't put it back. No, I know, I know. Well, well, all right, just put his fingers down your throat. I, I'm just taking you as gospel <laughs> joke, joke for what choice. gateway. Well, then I realised, hang on a minute, when he starts abducting her or, you know, um, keeping people hostage and starving them, you're beyond gateway yeah. anymore. I mean, the boom gate's well and truly up by now. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. So Catalan recalls, Mr Kimes was very quiet. He rarely said anything. However, Sante was the opposite. We'd be sitting at a table in a restaurant and in 10 minutes she'd get up and greet someone or take a telephone call. She would sweep into places and demand a telephone, claiming that the governor was going to call her or someone else equally (laughs) famous. And people just rushed to help her because she looked like she had money. Also, Catalan says... Sante knew more about the law concerning fraud than anyone. <laughs> Catalan later learned from the insurance company that Sante had filed a false claim for a $30,000 Rolex she had bought her husband. Catalan also says the Kimes has never paid him his fee. He tried to sue them but was <laughs> unable to serve them with papers because he couldn't find them. They'd left Honolulu after their house burnt down in a fire. <laughs> oh, what- Horrible luck. What horrible luck. Yep. What horrible luck. They surfed out of there on a surfboard, honestly. I mean, obviously the fire um, was one that they believed was set to get the insurance money. Uh, In his search for Sante, Catalan... No, it was legit. Catalan ran a criminal records check on her. He found that she had a rap sheet dating back to 1961 for crimes including petty theft, auto theft, and credit card forgery. He also found that she had some 20 aliases. So so now let's get back to little Kenny, who uh, was born on the 24th of March, 1975. He was doted on by his father, who also had a son and a daughter from his first marriage, and he was overprotected by his mother, who was almost 41 years when she was, sorry, when he was born, which is in 1975, 41 is old to mm. be having children. As a baby, he was cared for by nannies. And later, he had private tutors because his mother refused to send him to school. Oh, God, homeschool. She would talk about the things she was afraid would happen to Kenny. She was worried about the inferiority of the schools, recalls Douglas Crawford, a lawyer who formerly worked for Sante and her husband. She was completely controlling of anybody who would have contact with Kenny. Kenny was five when his parents bought a large house at 2121 Geronimo Way, which abutted the magnificent greens of the Las Vegas National Golf Club. Neighbours remember him as a timid little boy. He was not around other children. 
He was a little eccentric, a little strange, says one. He was alone and he was dying to play with the other kids. Kenny's nannies would pull him away when other children came to play. Sante told neighbourhood mothers that her son had tested in the genius range and she didn't want him mingling with other children, although she eventually permitted Kenny to have a few playmates. No. I don't like He's Sante. A... I have to say at this point, I do not like this woman. Well, you don't like her now? I like, I, yeah. What? I know, finally. <laughs> like the boom gate lifted no, a lot. What no, I know that. But she's really like really like her now. She's staying to piss me off now. Yeah. <laughs> Take yeah, it out hold, on the kid. She's, just, she's so and her testicles. full of shit. I just, everything yeah. that comes out of her mouth is just. Bull. No, he's so, a child genius. Yeah. Like he could have been a child genius. He might well be, but yeah. No, he wasn't. She just said that to as a way to um <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. keep him away. Yeah, no, hundred percent he no, wasn't no, a child genius. No, no. no, there was actually a story where okay. um she said that she didn't want Kenny playing with another kid because Kenny was way smarter than this other kid, and this other kid has since gone on to become a doctor and you know, all these amazing things. So he was pretty smart. Okay. Anyway, one nanny noticed that Kenny was becoming a bit of a truth stretcher, <gasps> lying about oh! things to get his way. I hope she didn't mention that to mum. Oops. <laughs> she decided Oops. to tell Kenny the story of the boy who cried wolf to teach him the importance of telling the truth. Kenny loved the story and later thought he'd share the uh, story with his family when they were having dinner and the nanny who was, of course, oh, with God. them. When Sante heard it, she was furious. She stood up, grabbed the nanny by the arm and took her into one of the bedrooms where she threw the nanny onto the bed and told her never to teach Kenny about morals again because that's her job. (laughs) And there's a time to lie and a time to tell the truth. For every season, turn, turn. Turn, turn. In July 1985, Sante was brought to Washington, D.C. to stand trial for having stolen a mink coat from the piano bar of the Mayflower Hotel. The theft had occurred five years earlier with Kenny reportedly asleep in his hotel room. His parents had gone down to the bar and Sante stole the $5,000 coat from the back of a chair. She'd done it purely for the thrill. She already had several mink coats that Kenneth had bought her. She managed to evade trial for years, making up stories about medical appointments that she never had. On July 18, 1985, she finally went to court where a jury convicted Sante. However, she was having none of it. And as the jury was deliberating, (laughs) she got up and walked out of the courthouse and hopped on a plane to California. How? How can she do that? She wants, right? Right? An incredibly ballsy move but also a really (laughs) clever one because several years later the conviction was reversed on the grounds that the defendant had not been present when the jury's verdict was announced. No. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, you know, she she did know everything about fraud. Maybe she'd done a lot of study on what to do if you find yourself in that situation. I can't believe she wasn't restrained. Surely she'd been arrested. I don't understand it. I, I I can't work out how you can literally be in court, about to be sentenced, and you just, and just get, get up, up and, and away out. you go. No one stops yeah. you. Yeah, they weren't expecting that. Anyway, here just we are. Shock going. She, she gone to the toilet. Where's she gone? She's gone out for a dart. What's going on? Oh, don't don't worry. She'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder how long they waited. <laughs> That concludes part one of my story, which I'd like to title The Busiest okay. Woman in the World. And hopefully now you can both see why. <laughs> oh, wow. my God. Um, you could also call it the, the most gateway, 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 gateway. It was just constant. Yeah. It's like okay. um, Get Smart. You know Get Smart when he's going and the yes, doors keep to all shutting the doors, on it. So I'm hoping now that you've got a great insight into what sort of a woman Sante was. Next episode, we'll take things a up egg. a notch yep. and discuss more stories of Ooh, theft okay. and arson before heading on to slavery and, and other murder. stuff. <gasps> slavery. Oh, for God's sake. Okay. Sante's going to uh-huh. up yep. and up. 
But but before we do this, any preliminary thoughts or are we happy to just run on? I have to run on because what I would say is I don't like I don't like Sante. I don't like I don't like Sante. <laughs> I don't like I'm not, her. I don't I like her don't one like bit. Her. I've not warmed to her. I've no, not warmed no, to her. No. I don't know if that was perhaps your <laughs> <the> intention. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I might have an issue with her. I don't I don't think I like her very much. Okay. Excellent. All right. All right. She's a nasty woman. Good to hear about this charming lady, and I'm sure we're going to hear more. So thanks to that for our listeners. Yes, this is a two-parter, so no sentencing. No. Uh, but Stay we will tuned. see you. Stay Next tuned. Next week, and as we say, when every shit week. gets real. Miss you already. What's Sante got up Miss you sleeve? already. Ciao. Ciao, darling. Ciao, 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 ciao for ciao. now now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trial by Wine. You can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Trial by Wine on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com, Trial by Wine, or visit our website, www.trialbywine.com, to donate to us. Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com.